cohabiting before marriage. And it talked about how in the U.S. that in the past half century, this has increased by 1,500%. Yeah. In 1960, about 450,000 unmarried couples lived together, and now it's more than 7.5 million. And the majority of young adults in their 20s will live with a romantic partner at least once, and more than half of all marriages will be preceded by cohabitation. There was also a survey that had been done of 20-somethings, and they agreed that they would only marry someone if they agreed to live together first because they about two-thirds said they believed that moving in together before marriage was a good way to avoid divorce. Now, the interesting thing about this article was this article was actually written that the statistics have proven out that that actually is not the case, that couples who live together before they get married, especially before an engagement or some kind of clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and that they are more likely to end a divorce than couples that don't live together before they get married. So we talked about that as a staff, and so I just want to put that picture in your mind. If there's um, an element of conventional wisdom, perhaps in our culture, that is proving to not be true. Additionally, I met a lady this weekend for the first time, and um, it ended up that um, she was sharing with us, she's a single woman, and she's almost 60, and she was sharing with a group of people in a church. Um, she has a very interesting background. Um, sure. Okay, we'll stop and pray for that, and I think I saw Ellen out there going to check it out, so um, we'll have her do that. Um, Lord, we come before you aware that there is some need that is going on outside, presumably driven by someone whose health is in danger or something that has happened, and we believe that you are the healer and that you are able to intervene in that situation. And so I ask that you would heal whoever has been injured or hurt, that you would give the doctors and the paramedics wisdom and a quick resolution to that circumstance. God, I pray, um, I thank you for those that are willing to serve in those capacities of caring for us and just pray that you would protect those paramedics and doctors and individuals as they um, care for this individual and the rest of the folks during our shift, their shift tonight. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, sure. Yeah, I see them out there checking on that. And so maybe... Um, just so we'll have an update. Lynn, do you mind going and finding out what that is just so no one will be worried about it? Great. We'll tell you. Awesome. That sounds great. Okay. Back to our study of Colossians. Just kind of, we're talking about relationships and how there's some conventional wisdom in the world about what relationships should look like. Additionally, I was telling you about a lady who I'd met who has a pretty scattered background in different churches, some years in a cult, um, some different church experiences, and she's recently started attending a church that believes what the scripture teaches about marriage and what that should look like. She's almost 60, and she said before she came to that church and saw how marriage was practiced according to the scripture, that she had never been jealous of anyone of the fact that um, she wasn't married. She'd never experienced any jealousy about that. And so I think that relationships are an interesting topic because what is conventional and cultural wisdom and what God has to say in the scriptures at times are two very different things. And often I think sometimes we forget that what he has for us is best, even if it seems hard in the moment. So I want to put in context what we are going to be talking about tonight. We have been studying through the book of Colossians, and Colossians is a book that was written by Paul and Timothy to a group of Christians who were at Colossae. They were a pretty good group of Christians. They weren't necessarily doing a whole lot of overt, terrible things bad, but some things in their culture had come up and began to challenge what Paul had taught them about Christ, and or not really what Paul had taught, but what Epaphras and others had taught them, and he was very concerned about the things from the culture that were impacting them. And so throughout the course of this book, I actually put this little chart on our outline. Remember the first week we kind of started talking about the good life and how if we want to experience the good life and an abundant life, the first thing we have to do is to look at Christ, his glory, who he really is, what he has accomplished in the past and what he accomplishes even still now in holding the world together and in all kinds of other things. 
That's our first step. And then as a result of that, we uh, realized that we have and experience a lot of things because of Christ. As a result of, do you have an update? Great. Praise God. Thanks for telling us that. So thanks for praying with us for him. So um, we have been talking through the book about Jesus, who he is, what we get to experience because of that. And then last week we talked about the resulting character attitudes and actions that come from walking with Christ. And today we're going to take that a step further. And as a part of the good life, what we started with, what actually happens and should happen as a part of our relationships in walking through this process. Now, admittedly, um, we are going to cover a lot of verses tonight, and I know that we're just going to kind of be able to touch on things briefly. If um, I had my way, we would discuss it for about six more weeks to two months to be able to kind of do it justice, but we can't. So here's my goal. Number one, I want us to see what the scripture says. And two, I want to just perhaps encourage you that fighting for that and figuring out what that is is worth it so that you can experience the fullness of life, whether it's cultural or countercultural. And it's real interesting. I Googled this week, like, how to have a good marriage, how to have a good parent-child relationship, just to see what was out there. And something I think is very interesting is some of the information out there is bad and some isn't. So it takes a lot of wisdom and discernment to kind of weed through it. There's relationship advice everywhere. And again, some of it is okay and some of it isn't the best. And so we are going to go to God's word, look at specifically what he has described those relationships should look like for us to experience the good life. Hopefully, I gave you some questions around your table since we weren't going to be able to talk about a lot of the specific lies that are out there. Hopefully, you got to talk with some around your tables, and then hopefully we can all see and hear a little bit of the blessing of that so that we want to go out and experience relationships the way that God intended rather than maybe what cultural wisdom might say. So pull out your Bibles and open to Colossians chapter 3. Again, we're not going to necessarily be able to spend very long on any of these, but as we're reading through, I gave five different types of relationships we're going to talk about. And I'd love for you to just leave this evening maybe with one that's kind of ringing in your head thinking, you know, I'm not sure I'm totally doing this scripturally the way that God would have me, and I want to kind of maybe focus in a little on that one this week. So the first one we're going to talk about is the marriage relationship, and Colossians 3:18 and 19 addresses the wisdom that God has for us that should overflow out of our relationship with Christ into our marriages. Verses 18 and 19 say, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and not be harsh with them. This would not be considered very um, culturally appropriate, but again, we kind of started off with the fact that some of those things that seem culturally appropriate have a dead end in them, whether they realize it or not. And so we're going to look at what God says so we can experience the life he has for us. First, I want to note that this is described as a relationship between a husband and wife. This is not how men and women should interact with each other. These scriptures are for a husband and a wife. Clearly, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submission, if you look at it in the scriptures, is not um, something that implies that the wife is less intelligent or less important in any way. When you look at the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit... The son, Jesus, who's God, is actually in submission to the father. So certainly submitting doesn't involve being less intelligent. It doesn't involve checking your brain at the door. It doesn't mean you do every single solitary thing your husband tells you to do. Certainly you would not sin in any regard. That would not be acceptable. It, it very clearly in the text says, as is fitting in the Lord. It is, however... Um, just kind of a disposition where the wife wants to and is looking to follow the husband's leadership and an inclination to yield to that. Now, again, I said we're going to just be able to touch on these real briefly. And the husband, obviously, is to love the wife and not be harsh with her. Now, again, I know some of you are wanting to say, can we please spend about four more hours on that? Sure, come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it. But I want to give testimony. I asked some different women who are sitting in this room to kind of share with me whether they are glad or not that they have sought in each one of these areas to do what God says, even if it's hard. 
And I also want to know that every one of these people I'm going to read from, I'm not going to give you their names, um, don't have a charmed life. Sometimes I think when we hear an example of someone saying, I was so blessed by your imagining the man on the white horse or the perfect child or the whatever, like that's not these people. They're real people that have fought to do these things. And so I want you to hear this as people who would come up to you and say, hasn't been easy, but looking back, here's what I think. So here's what several of them have to say about seeking to do the marriage relationship God's way. One says, I'm tremendously blessed when I go with the Lord's plan on how I'm supposed to interact with people, particularly my husband. I've been so lucky to realize the pattern of submission and blessing. When I do submit, my husband will consistently choose better for me than I would choose for myself. It certainly is an encouragement to follow the Lord's plan more closely. Another individual, another woman who had tried kind of doing relationships the world's way says, my goal was to chase my own comfort, happiness, and significance and me-focused agenda. When I turned to do it God's way, he handled all the pieces, and I have the peace that passes understanding. I found that a God-focused marriage has been that missing puzzle piece. Having tried relationships according to conventional wisdom in the world, she said, hey, doing this marriage thing and doing it God's way was the thing that I was actually missing. One lady who'd been married 41 years said this, my husband and I are so blessed by a firm commitment to the things God has put in place. We are called to work this out, I believe, through the ups and downs of just doing life together. It is work and it is good. Marriage is really hard and really rewarding. So my exhortation to you, if you're in a marriage relationship today, in you feel like, I'm not really doing this very well, to kind of press into this one this week. These are some women that have had some bumps and bruises along the way that have said, hey, fighting for this matters, even if it doesn't go with conventional wisdom. I encourage you to look at that a little more closely this week. Second, let's look at the next relationship, and that is between a parent and a child. In verse 20 and 21, the scriptures say, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, that would not include if a parent asks a child to sin for some reason the same qualifications. It doesn't mean children can't think and can't have influence and can't have an opinion. Um, Verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And asking some individuals about this and kind of how they've seen this play out, I thought it was interesting, one of the examples given about how um, this woman has seen parents uh, provoke and exasperate their children. She says, working in a school for many years, I've observed the tremendous energy exerted by what she calls helicopter parents who diligently strive to order and control all circumstances their children will encounter in order to guarantee their children's success. God's way is so much better. Simply allowing God to write his story for my children's lives, trusting that everything he allows comes from his goodness and sovereign control. Additionally, there was another lady who has a child right now who is not um, pursuing things of the Lord, is making some very open, clear choices that are not consistent with God's word, and she's grieved about that. And yet she looks back and says this, I truly believe we've attempted to do our best in doing relationships God's way and showing our kids according, how to live according to God's truth. Even though our child right now is choosing to live in denial of what God's word says, we know that he's been taught the truth, and we're able to trust that God loves him dearly and will use his truth to work in his lives, in his life. We are resting and trusting in the foundation that he has and knows about living life God's way. So even a parent in the midst of a struggle looks at the commands and says, I'm going to go with the commands and rest in that and trust God to do the rest. Again, parent-child relationships can be hard, but not exasperating a child and is part of God's command. So that's just a little bit about the parent-child relationship. Again, we're moving through these kind of quickly, so hopefully I just prayed that the Spirit would bring at least one to mind that you wanted to really dig in and wrestle in and kind of live those things out. The next relationship I want us to look at is the boss-employee relationship. If you got to that question in your um, discussion around your table, it was talking about slavery, which I am going to explain, but actually with a passage a little bit later. So know that that's coming. I'm not going to forget 
But look at how God describes what our employer-employee relationship should look like from the employee perspective. In verse 22, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward Receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back according to the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So we see here God commanding those of us who work for employers. And even someone gave an example as I was talking to some friends about this, about even being in a volunteer position under authority, really trying to live out those same principles because it can be real tempting, especially if you're a volunteer, to feel like, well, I don't have to do this. I'm just a volunteer. You're not paying me. And I really like the fact that she talked about really trying to do this, whether she was getting paid or not. I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that. And she says, God's placed those in authority over me. And when I argue with my boss, I'm really telling God I'm not pleased with who he's chosen. And that's very convicting. She says, I've always found that God blesses obedience. And when I disagree with the procedure, God always provides an opportunity for change in his timing and not mine. Talking about really working hard and submitting and trusting God to bring about the time and the place for that to occur. Somebody also said this. I thought it was really cool. She says, I'm not a perfect employee, but I've always known this verse and tried to follow it. Listen to this. And in the times when I'm not working heartily for the Lord, I feel the dissatisfaction, even if it doesn't necessarily show up to my boss. Interesting. Maybe the boss doesn't catch the fact that you were just ticked off and called in sick and you weren't sick. Maybe you don't get caught. But who are you really working for? You're working for the Lord. And someone else also said, our testimony in the workplace is so significant to the Lord as we encounter all kinds of challenges because we work with people. So that opportunity to the Lord, first of all, because you're working for him, and to your coworkers to be working as if you're working for the Lord, which calls, which to me it does two things, and this is just me. It calls me to a higher standard, but it also brings me some relief that... Um, if I know I've honored the Lord and my boss is getting upset with me over stuff I can't control, I can still be peaceful because I know I've done what I can to honor the Lord. And if it's a boss who's um, being overbearing in some way, I can say, think internally to myself. I can be at peace because I've done and worked for the Lord and I have some rest in that. So there's a rest and a peace that comes when we acknowledge we're working for the Lord and do that for him. What about the flip side? What about the boss? What about Christian bosses? Or what about if you are in authority over someone, even in a volunteer position? How should you view those people, quote-unquote, under you? Well, we see that in Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Acknowledging that the employer is not just supposed to take total advantage of the employee. Someone told this testimony about how they, at their company, ran into some difficult economic times. And statistically, it made sense with their consultants and CPA just to say, okay, we're going to have to let some people go. And I'm not saying that's always the wrong thing. But in this scenario, they realized doing that was going to be really hard on some of their staff. So instead, they readjusted their expenses, took cuts in their pay, and God really blessed that decision and made it all work out in the end. So as an employer, you are recognizing, or as the leader of a volunteer organization or the people you over, are you thinking about things from their perspective or just from your perspective? Okay, the next relationship is the relationship among Christians. And really, as we've been going through Colossians, there have been other things that have referenced this back in Colossians chapter 3. Just before these verses, we see Paul talking about how we should teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And so certainly this phrase right here is not the only thing Colossians has to say about, the, about interaction with um, other believers. And continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Certainly that would apply to people that aren't Christians as well, praying for them. 
And then Paul and Timothy say, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. There's an interaction that we should have with other Christians, interactions that we should have with our leaders, even those you may not know. You may or may not have met Ted Kitchens before, who's the pastor here, or some of the other pastors on staff, but I hope you pray for him. Um, I hope that that's a part of acknowledging that we get to pray for people whether we meet them or not. I know he would be thrilled if you would pray for him as he preaches that and as he ministers to people in the community that God would open up a door for him to speak about Christ. There are relationships even if we don't necessarily see him all the time and I know at a big church sometimes we may feel a little disconnected for those, from those things or from other Christians or other areas of ministry at the church but hopefully we are at least praying for each other and then interacting as we can. The final area of relationships, just for us to think about, and I know that we've talked about a lot of them, and like I said, hopefully at your table you got to talk about some of the cultural um, distinctions or ways the world might tell us how to do things. Certainly the world would not um, align with this next phrase, which I will read in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Again, that word outsiders is, you know, in referring to people that aren't Christians, certainly in our culture, they wouldn't necessarily consider anyone an outsider. Everyone's kind of an insider, and you're just figuring it out your own way. But we have to acknowledge that there are those um, who don't know Christ. We don't think of that pridefully, but um, we certainly were saved by grace. But we need to consider the fact that there are people that don't know Christ, so how should we interact with them? It tells us in verse six or verse five, making the best use of the time. That time we do have with people around us that don't know Christ. Are we using that as well as we could? Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. How is your speech as you're interacting with them? Are you aware as to how you should answer their questions? Maybe that's something you need to work on. I know it's one of the things that is tempting for us when we start to interact with people that aren't Christians is you think, well, they're going to ask me something I'm not going to know how to answer. What am I going to do? So we let that fear keep us from talking. Well, I think that means we just need to go figure out how we need to answer that question. Or if they ask you a question you don't know, you can say, I'll go look it up. Certainly, we see that the scriptures are clear as to how we are to interact and how what we've experienced in Christ is supposed to trickle down and impact our relationships. Again, wish we had about six to eight weeks to talk about the different cultural implications of all that, but we just don't have time. And so we will trust the Holy Spirit to bring it to everyone's mind and hopefully encourage you to at least in one of those areas kind of press in and say, hey, what do I need to do maybe a little differently here in my relationships because of who Christ is. Kind of transitioning to our next part, which one thing is this is just going to be fun, but it's actually going to prove a point at the end, so trust me with this. I don't think you'll care anyway when I tell you what it is. Um, we had a wonderful new woman join our staff this week, Amy Foster. I now have a neighbor. I was between two empty offices, so now I actually have a neighbor, which is super fun. And it's great that Christ Chapel always hires um, such awesome people committed to the right things. And as we were talking this week, um, we all had lunch together, and I don't know, Ellen said something to me when we were talking about my talk, and I just so you you know, Amy's first comment about my talk was, you know, I really liked it when you brought chocolate that week. So <laughs> it's good to know that our women's staff has their priorities in order. Chocolate first, Jesus second. Just kidding. She totally does love Jesus and chocolate, which makes her even more awesome. And so, so in that spirit, which is also going to prove a point, Amy, I'll have you know that for everyone in the room today, I begged some chocolate chip muffins or chocolate chip like cookie brownie things. So these bags are all full of chocolate muffins and of chocolate cookies. And so y'all feel free to come get them and pass them around to people. So I did it partially. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> Just for fun, 
which will also prove a point at the end. That's all right. Feel free to share. There, there are different size muffins and different kinds of cookies in there, so hopefully there's enough for everyone to have one. Clearly, I like baking. <laughs> are they all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go steal some from other tables. <laughs> Y'all are trading. You're welcome. So part of that was just because I like to bake. Part of that was just because I thought it would be random and fun. And I will make a point with it in a minute. So back to just a little bit. I kind of ran through the whole relationships among Christians part. And so I'm going to try to explain. We're going to work through this last part of Colossians where Paul is really kind of talking about specific people and giving greetings to specific people in specific places. And I want you to see a little bit about, um, you know, we've gone through Christ and who he is and how that impacts us, how that should overflow in our actions and in our relationships. And I want you to see Paul and what he, um, his interaction with other believers and kind of how the body of Christ is supposed to be at work. First of all, also, with a nod out to Deb, I have a map. I haven't had a map all semester, but it's totally going to make a difference here in a minute. You'll see Colossae, obviously, is where we've been talking about, and it kind of has a pullout, and you're going to see how close Laodicea, and I've totally pronounced, like, saying out loud in my office how to say that H word, and I'm going to say it wrong, so I, Hierapolis, I really did practice it out loud, so, but... Anyway, those three cities are going to be mentioned kind of as we go through here. So think about where they are and how they're kind of close together. And Ephesus um, is going to be mentioned here too. So just kind of have in your mind that those cities are pretty close to each other. Because Paul and Timothy are writing this letter. And we've, they're sending it back to the people at Colossae. Probably also at this time, Tychicus, who we're getting ready to talk about, also carried the book of Philemon and Ephesians. We're going to see that as we go through here. So you can see how if they were sending it, how sending the same carrier to take one to Ephesus and Colossae and also the book of Philemon, you'll see how they're kind of near each other. They're also going to reference Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so you can understand how they might send greetings or send a message to all those people because they're kind of near each other. So that's just background. But I want us to look at some of the people that Paul knew and did ministry to and in and around. And I want us to kind of look at what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. Several people we've already talked about. Obviously, it's the body of Christ, so Christ is the head. And we've talked about how Paul has written this book along with Timothy. These are not put any specific place. They're just where I put them on there. So there's no, like, secret thing that I'm trying to say Paul's the knee or something like that. Like, it has nothing to do with that. Um, Also, he'd written this letter to the Colossians. So we've talked about them a good bit this semester. So they each have had a role in writing this letter and in receiving this letter. So let's pick up in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. And I want us to look at all of these people at least briefly. Tychicus, in verse 7, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Okay. Tychicus is mentioned several other places in the scripture. We first see him in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is for a period of time in Greece, and then a plot was made against him by the Jews, and he set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia, and then he describes a group of people, and Tychicus being one of them, that they went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So Paul's relationship with Tychicus was at least a decade long, not real sure how long, but they have a relationship that goes over a period of time. 
Tychicus is again mentioned in Ephesians. Now again, he was probably carrying Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon and delivering these letters. So we see the phrasing in Ephesians chapter 6.21. Again, the beloved brother, faithful minister, he's going to tell you everything. However, it wasn't just this time that he interacted with Tychicus or he was mentioned in one of the letters. We see him again mentioned in 2 Timothy 4 verse 12 saying, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. Um, Titus chapter 3, he says, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you. So we're seeing that Tychicus is not a person that just is mentioned once. Paul and Timothy, I mean, Paul has a history with him that runs over the course of at least a decade. He's a part of this ministry that Paul has. So we see Tychicus in several places. Also, along with Tychicus carrying this letter from Paul in verse 9, with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Now, Onesimus is also mentioned specifically in Philemon, and this is where we're going to talk for a minute. I told you I was going to address the slavery issue. Onesimus is actually a slave that at some point has run away from his master, who is Philemon, potentially um, stolen some money or taken some things with him. At some point, he's come to Christ has met Paul and interacted with Paul, and Paul says, you have to go back. You have to go back. And I want you to listen to part of the letter that Paul writes to Philemon, and he doesn't say, let Onesimus go. But look at what he does that moves way deeper, in my opinion, than just let you know, let Philemon go, don't, I mean, let Onesimus go, don't have a slave. Listen to how he describes Onesimus and see how this is breaking down barriers far more than a slave. It cuts across any racial divide, any gender divide. It goes way deeper, in my opinion, what Paul is saying to Philemon than does just let him go and not be your slave. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 8 in Philemon. Paul says, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, he could tell him what to do. But he says, yet for love's sake, I'm going to appeal to you. I, Paul, I'm an old man and I'm a prisoner of Christ. I appeal to you for my child. Okay, he's just described a slave as his child. Okay, he's cutting way deeper than let this guy go. Listen to how he's describing him. He's my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He was useless in the past, even though he was your slave, presumably, and did things for you. However, he was useless then, but now he's not. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. He is calling Philemon into accepting Onesimus as a brother in Christ. He's moving way beyond whether there's a sense of legal ownership. He's moving way deeper than that. Verse 15, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Okay, I know that when we look at the scriptures, part of us would like to read phrases that say, let the slaves go. And we do see believers throughout history, like William Wilberforce, being driven by the gospel to work for the end of slavery. I want you to see how what Paul does goes far deeper and is far more significant than let the slave go. He's saying everyone in Christ is the same, is unified, is valued, is a brother, is a sister. The gospel moves way deeper than whether you externally own someone. It moves down to the core and said based on gender, ethnicity, history, whatever. One, brothers and sisters, 
in Christ on the same plane, recipients of grace. So, as we think about the body of Christ, we've got Onesimus up there, who from the world's perspective would look useless and like a slave. And Paul looks at him and says, nope, he's my kid. He's useful now. I'm sending him back to you. Forgive him, just as Christ has forgiven all of us, and he is just as much a part of this body as is Paul. Things wouldn't go well if any part of the body wasn't here. So Onesimus, in the way Paul describes this whole slavery thing in Philemon, really to me is far more significant than just saying, let the slave go. There's so much there, but I can't talk about that anymore because we have to keep going. So, um, we're seeing this body of Christ kind of fill up. Hopefully you're seeing the different parts come together. The next person I want us to look at is in verse 10. We say, and again, I practice all these words, but we'll see if I really say them right. If you give them to a Greek scholar, I'm sure they'll laugh. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. We also see Aristarchus in some other places in Acts 19:29, and I haven't just so you know I haven't put down every place all these people were mentioned because some of them are mentioned in the same verses and it would take forever. I just want you to see a piece of the puzzle that a lot of these people weren't just one time Paul happened to meet somewhere. They're a body of Christ coming in and out of and intertwining with people's lives in different ways over the course of different seasons. And I love Aristarchus because we see him in Acts 19 in the city of Ephesus when there was great confusion. You know, Paul and a lot of the early Christians went through different levels of persecution. And this is one of those times where Paul actually escaped and was not taken in. There was a riot. Things were dangerous. And Aristarchus was actually one of the ones dragged into the theater. What happened, we're not sure, but apparently he lives through it because we see him in Acts 27, him having gone through some kind of danger, persecution, maybe physical, at least fear, we have to imagine. But he doesn't bail. He hangs with the deal, still follows Christ, and is a part of the body. And we see him mentioned in Acts chapter 27, verse 20, with Paul saying, you know, they went to sea and he was accompanied again by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So we see, we don't know a whole lot about him, but certainly he's someone who in some ways suffered for the gospel and was a part of the ministry that Paul and others had. Continuing on, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, this is still in verse 10 in chapter 4, concerning whom he received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. First, let's talk about Barnabas for a minute. In Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, we see Barnabas selling a field and giving it, laying it at the apostles' feet. Just a believer who was concerned and moved of the Lord to sell and give something for the sake of Christ. Then in Acts chapter 13, as there were a group of believers worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, for the work I've called them. And they go on a missionary journey together. So Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is mentioned in and out um, Acts at different times. We see, however, something happen in regards to Mark. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas say, hey, let's go back and visit some of the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas says, I want to take John, who's called Mark, I want to take Mark with us. Paul says, nope, I don't want to take him because he withdrew from us in Pamphylia and he had not gone with them to do the work. Barnabas and Paul have a sharp disagreement and they separate from each other. Barnabas takes Mark with him and sails away and Paul chooses Silas and they depart together. However, what do we read here? That Mark who apparently for a season has not gone with them to do the work, has apparently come back and Paul says, hey, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So we see some folks that didn't always get it right, but were still a part of the body of Christ, in and out, making um, the ministry of Christ work because they were all working together. Let's keep on going. We see also in verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice. Frankly, that's all we know about him. I don't have anything else to reference you about. 
But um, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, we've talked about him throughout the book of Colossians. Paul says, he is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras is mentioned in Philemon. Again, um, Epaphras sends greetings to Philemon. Again, these books were probably carried together, but we see him mentioned also um, in the book of Philemon. In verse 13, it describes um, Epaphras, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in. So we see there's some believers in Laodicea um, and also in the word I can't say, Hierapolis, that I've practiced several times. So we see there are churches and ministries going on. We may not know all the details about them, but they're a part of the body of Christ. They're serving and growing and struggling and doing things where they are. Verse 14, we run into someone else. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Um, Luke is also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, verses 11. Um, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Again, he talks about Mark again, and we see just the restoration that has occurred. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Um, The book of Luke that you read in the Gospels was um, penned by Luke. The book of Mark is penned by the Mark we've got up here. So we see, um, again, different people doing their part as a part of the body of Christ. Um, The next person mentioned is Demas, and he's kind of interesting because we see in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 um, Paul describes him as someone who's in love with this present world and he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica Um, to be honest I don't really know exactly what that means here's what I mean by that was he a Mark situation where maybe he deserts Paul for a season and comes back I don't know was he someone like Judas who appeared to walk with a group of followers for a while but you found out later was never really of them and was a a deceiver all along? I don't know. So I've put Demas out here because I don't, I'm not, I just don't know. I mean, the Lord knows hearts, and um, there are people that walk for seasons, and uh, I'm not the judge of hearts, God is. So Demas may be a part of the body of Christ. He may not. We'll know in heaven. I don't know. Um, Verse 15 Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Again, there's a church in her house. That's all I got for you. Um, You know, doesn't it make you want to know a little more about these people? I can think it's really cool. Verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Verse 17. Say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. And then um, Paul also references uh, Archippus as he writes the letter to Philemon. Paul ends um, in verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Part of my point in doing this is um, just an illustration of the body of Christ. Um, And again, there's so many more names that go on there. I almost made another screen that just had names of different people from Christ Chapel that we could all add in here. Paul nor Timothy, though we've talked about their names maybe a little more than others, they're just a part of the body. Christ is the head. He's the central one. And if Onesimus and Tychicus hadn't taken the letter to the Colossians, they would have never read it. And you think about if Mark hadn't written the Bible down, written it down, we wouldn't have had it. Everyone has their piece of the puzzle and their things they bring to the table. And one is no more important than the other. If any one of these names would go away, the ministry of the body of Christ wouldn't have continued as God intended it to to continue. And so um, I know that as we've worked through um, the book of Colossians, we've talked a lot about Christ and who he is, and it's real easy to to think... um, great things about Paul or great things about Timothy or Epaphras, but they are just as we are a part of the body of Christ. And so my exhortation is that, and whatever God has gifted you with, made you passionate about, things you like, um, 
opportunities he's given you, use that as a part of the body of Christ. And our lives will intersect in and out in different ways. Some of us spending more time together than others. Some of us maybe being across the room at Women in the Word, but never really getting to have a conversation. And yet working on the same thing toward the same end, toward the same goal. Here's where I'm tying in a little bit of my baking. I love to bake, so I baked for you. And the point was that hopefully you'll remember that's just something I like and bring to the table. I didn't make you a craft because you'd have hated it because it had been ugly. (laughs) You would not have enjoyed it, I promise you. Whatever way God has formed and created and gifted and even the struggles and sufferings and the different things he's brought brought into your life and baking the thing it was to hopefully one day you'll remember, now why did that girl make those things? Because you're probably not going to remember anything specific that I said all semester, but sometimes when you use illustrations or things, people will remember it. The point is, I like to bake, so I baked to bless you, hopefully, as a part of the body of Christ. What do you have that you're passionate about, gifted in, created for? What circumstances, opportunities, um, struggles, I mean, whatever it is, wherever you are, if you've been given the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ, you're part of this body that's intended to go out and be a blessing to the people around you for the glory of Christ, for those that are to come um, after us so that the message continues to go on and on so that more and more can hear about Christ. Um, Last week, Harriet Paul, who I don't think is here. Harriet, are you out there and I missed you? I looked for her. She's been here this semester. But she gave me this notebook, which um, apparently years ago, maybe 20 years ago, um, one of the first Bible studies at Christ Chapel was on the book of Colossians. And so Harriet gave me her notebook because she taught that study. And it was kind of fun. We flipped through it a little bit at the office this week and whatever. And so to choose to end our study, the very last thing that Harriet has written in this notebook, it's on the very last page, is the quote that I put at the bottom of your um, outline. And I think it totally summarizes it. And so I decided that if it worked um, for Women's Bible Study 20 years ago, it would be great for today. She says, Paul makes it clear that Christ alone is the source of our spiritual life, the head of the body. He is Lord of hosts, Lord of both, the physical and spiritual worlds. The path to deeper spiritual life is not through religious duties, special knowledge, or secrets. It is only through a clear connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. We must never let anything come between us and our Savior. And in a lot of ways, that's what the book of Colossians has been about. Him going to Paul and Timothy, writing to the Colossians and say, you might hear this, but don't let that come between you and Christ and who it really is. You might hear this, but that's not who Christ is. Hang right there. The same exhortation that Paul gave to the Colossians, that Harriet gave to a group of women 20 years ago, is the same exhortation I will leave us all with. We must never let anything, regardless of how convincing or culturally acceptable or um, whatever it is, we must never let anything come between us and our Savior. Let me pray. Father, I'm grateful um, for Christ. He is the head of the body and um, has been and is accomplished so much and is our life. And we can't imagine um, life without him. Um, In addition to that, there's some people whose names are kind of behind us on a screen right now. And we've never met any of them face to face, but um, they are a part of the body of Christ. And because of them and their faithfulness, Um, you use them to be a blessing to us in ways that um, some we've seen tonight and some we may never know. Father, we want to just be a a part of that legacy. Um, We don't want to be, for any short or long period of time, distracted by the things of this present world. We don't want to let anything come between us and our Savior. And so I ask that um, for each one of this in this room that you would protect us from the things that are not helpful for us, that are lies that are distracting from Christ, that are not a part of the good life that you've called us to. Um, It's work, and I understand and acknowledge that, but um, Jesus is worth it. And Paul ends the book of Colossians um, saying, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Remember my chains. Um, Certainly he was 
in prison and um, valued Christ enough um, to be imprisoned for his sake. And then he says, grace uh, be with you. And so, Father, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed me, would be with each woman in this room and that they would um, walk out um, encouraged, challenged, and uh, forever just just a little bit closer to the Lord Jesus Christ until we see him um, when we die or until he returns. Thanks for the hope that we have and for blessing us and letting us know Christ and be a part of his body uh, here on earth and forever in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember, we'll be studying Proverbs in the fall, and so if you haven't filled in one of those green forms on your table, please be sure to do that. Thanks for being with us this summer, and um, we'll see you guys in September.